Contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. In times of spiritual and moral chaos, it can be hard to discern truth from error and to apply it to all of life. God's word is not silent, and we don't have to be either. This is Once for All Delivered with Caleb Castro and Andrew Smith. Well, hello and welcome to Once for All Delivered, uh, the podcast about stuff and things, uh, especially stuff and things that relate to uh, Christianity and culture and what we do. Yeah. Now, I'm your co-host, Caleb Castro. I am your other co-host, Andrew Smith. It's good to have you with us as we continue this discussion of views of church and state, particularly the modern and popular prevalent views. In the Reformed positions. Yeah, Reformed. Yeah, popular. Because we, we leave some out, like, uh, oh, we don't really get into Erastianism. Maybe we will briefly Maybe at some someday. point. There's a lot of things we can do. If we, if we have any Anglicans out there listening, we can make them feel loved and wanted. <laughs> or something. We'll, or maybe rage. Or that. Yeah. In confusion. Anyway. <laughs> so let's Christianity talk. and culture. Let's go. <laughs> so the next view that we want to look at, as far as this taxonomy of predominant views of today, is the, I call it a... Modern, well, I'll talk about the name in a second, but it is the two kingdoms view that is commonly referred to as R2K. Some take that R to mean radical. Some take that to mean reformed. And the, this leads to a lot of that sort of disagreement. Um, I'm going to actually propose a different name for it. Uh, will it catch on? Probably not. We don't exactly have the reach to inspire discussion of things like that but i think probably the best name for it is escondido two kingdoms now why do i call it that the reason i call it that is because this system is promoted it grew up in and emerged in and almost entirely was promoted through my alma mater and a place where Caleb also attended for a time, Westminster Seminary, California, which is located in Escondido. It is essentially a political theology based on the biblical theology and moral and ethical theology of Meredith G. Klein. There's a lot going on with Klein. I currently, if you, any of you follow me on Twitter, you know that this is a topic I come to and deal with personally a lot, uh, kind of trying to point out some of the issues and such with Meredith Klein. But what essentially happened, uh, Meredith Klein was a professor a few different places. He was at Westminster, Philadelphia for a time, and then Gordon Conwell for a time, and then ended his career at Westminster, California. And many of his students and many of those sympathetic to his views are now faculty at Westminster, California, and it is the two kingdoms theology they promote. And that's why I think a better, more precise descriptor of it would be Escondido Two Kingdoms, because it basically lives in and around Westminster, California and Meredith Quine. Now, that's not to say that's the only place you'll find it, but, but that's essentially uh, the hub of it. And I think, too, it maybe takes away some of the unnecessary heat of the discussion pertaining to 
well, it's not radical, it's reformed. Well, let's just look at the view and let's evaluate what's here. So the main proponents then of this view you would see now, and there's some variations between them, but you would probably be talking about Michael Horton and then David Van Drunen. Uh, Michael Horton, of course, and both of them, like I said, this was my alma mater. These were professors of mine. You know, this is nothing personal, but we do need to evaluate these views and the impact that they're having. So Michael Horton, of course, is a professor at Westminster, California, uh, host of the White Horse Inn, has been for a long time. And then David Van Drunen, uh, also professor of systematic theology and ethics, who has published on this topic. And in fact, I have one of my books, one of his books, uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms in front of me. And I want to talk through a few parts of that to sort of explain the view. Now, one of the things you notice right away, if you see this book on the cover is a Venn diagram. And I think it's a fitting cover because it sort of in visual form lays out what this view is. You basically have two spheres. You have the sacred sphere and the secular sphere and then a space in between where they meet. And so um, I'm going to read actually a rather lengthy quote. It's from pages 14 and 15 in the introduction of uh, Living in God's Two Kingdoms by Dr. Van Drun and that I think sets out the position says this two kingdoms doctrine strongly affirms that God has made all things that sin corrupts all aspects of life that Christians should be active in human culture that all lawful cultural vocations are honorable that all people are accountable to God in every activity and that Christians should seek to live out the implications of their faith in their daily vocations so far so good I think anything we could all pretty well agree on uh, but then, a Christian, however, does not have to adapt a redemptive vision of culture in order to affirm these important truths. A biblical two kingdoms doctrine provides another compelling way to do so. According to this doctrine, God is not redeeming the cultural activities and institutions of this world, but is preserving them through the covenant he made with all living creatures, through Noah in Genesis 8.20 through 9.17. And you'll hear this over and over again as you look at this school of two kingdoms thought, uh, references to the Noahic covenant. But continuing, God himself rules this, and he has in quotes, common kingdom, and thus it is not, as some writers describe it, the kingdom of man. So you kind of see the Venn diagram. There's sort of this middle space Continuing on, the kingdom is in no sense a realm of moral neutrality or autonomy. So he says there it's not neutral. We'll need to evaluate that claim as we go. God makes its institutions and activities honorable, though only for a for temporary and provisional purposes. Simultaneously, God is redeeming a people for himself by virtue of the covenant made with Abraham and brought to glorious fulfillment in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has completed Adam's original task once and for all. Uh, 
These redeemed people are citizens of the redemptive kingdom whom God is gathering now in the church and will welcome into the new heaven and the new earth at Christ's glorious return. Until that day, Christians live as members of both kingdoms, discharging their proper duties in each. They rejoice to be citizens of heaven through membership in the church, but also recognize for the time being that they are living in Babylon striving for justice and excellence in their cultural labors out of love for Christ and their neighbor as sojourners and exiles in a land that is not their lasting home, end quote. So a few distinct features of this that need to be pointed out. The two kingdoms, as you can see here in this quote, this was also how he would present it in class, the two kingdoms are two covenants. They are representative of two covenants that essentially function in parallel. So covenant theology and, and how you uh, handle and interpret covenant theology is going to have a lot to do with what you think about this. The Abrahamic covenant is the redemptive covenant it is the covenant under which the kingdom of god the church as it would be in this view functions functions in parallel with the noahic covenant which is a covenant of common grace that preserves the world preserves society and basically both the, we live under both of those covenants together and in parallel and simultaneously and so, as Christians, we have our citizenship in both kingdoms. Yeah, the, the gist in that of what, of what you're saying is um, the Christian life is, if you will, divided or separated into two non-overlapping areas, right? And that is basically church and the civil life. Their pool is is from uh, things like Luther, uh, who, as we said earlier— um, advocate something of a two kingdoms theology though there there are some uh there are some differences in in how luther actually goes about and conceives the on one hand separation and then the overlap of the christian life in the civic sphere in other words luther is, is actually not entirely consistent in talking about the uh separation between uh, the areas of the church and then how the the uh, state should govern the ordinary life, if you will, the, the civil sphere that uh, Van Drunen speaks of. This is this is uh, caused uh, a bit of a, a dust up in reformed circles because these uh, the, the, the proponents who hold to or follow the two kingdoms uh, theology basically claim it to be the original reformed position because uh calvin will use terms such uh in latin such as uh uh the duplex uh regimens the 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 uh he'll use the language of two kingdoms itself but the the, the question in it becomes like well what what is he actually referring to in those two kingdoms is it really specifically talking about in this world the church and the state um or is there a broader sense to understand these in terms of uh spirituality kingdom kingdom of of god and kingdom of darkness um so how do these uh how do these different areas uh the spiritual and temporal and then the church and the state how much do they actually parallel uh, is the spiritual confined to the church and is the temporal confined to uh, the civil life? 
Uh, so that, I mean, that, that's on uh, at its pulse the 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 primary issue in in trying to sort through these things. Now, this is to say that also Van Drunen does uh, utilize, and others, Van Drunen does utilize uh, Luther in certain areas that are correct. A moment ago here, uh, you're quoting from Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, uh, pardon me, from, from, from Living in God's Two Kingdoms. I want to point out also in Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, uh, basically his book on the historical development of this doctrine, how he sees it traced out throughout Reformed scholars in history. Van Duren on page 13 says that, uh, of, of natural law and two kingdoms, he says that Christians are citizens of two distinct kingdoms, both of which are ordained of God and under his law, yet exist for different purposes. They have different functions and operate according to different rules. And so that, that's really the gist there. How does this relate then to, to the moral law? Is the moral law abiding and binding the law, the holy law of God, not in its temporary ceremonial and civic state for Israel, but the holy moral law of God, which comes from his eternal character, his wisdom, his his own holiness, righteousness and and mercy and so on, his attributes. How much uh, of that is binding on people in society who are not believers, if at all? And that's really where the rub is on this two kingdoms doctrine and really where we start to see the issue of applications. Uh, because as Caleb quoted there, in this system, the two kingdoms operate according to two different rules. The church, the kingdom of God, operates according to special revelation, operates according to scripture, as this view would say. And then the common kingdom operates according to natural law. Now, again, as with this, the devil was in the details. Natural law is something that has historically been taught and affirmed in Reformed theology. But what is meant by it? Well, I would argue that the position of Reformed theology, and I think it's clearly codified, for instance, in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession, which we come back to over and over again, the moral law is uh, summarized in and is to be identified most closely with, in terms of biblical revelation, uh, the Ten Commandments, the two tables of the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments dealing with our love for God, and the second six dealing with how we are to love our neighbor, and so also then further summarized in the two great commandments, uh, you shall love the Lord your God, and then you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That has been the historic reformed understanding of natural law, and that moral law is part of man's creation, Again, you see it in chapter 4 and also again in chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession that this law is part of man's creation in the image of God in true right, true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. You can think back to some of our discussions we've had earlier in this series about what constitutes the image of God. Um, the moral law is a part of that. And so that moral law is written on the hearts of men. However... Because we are fallen and sinful, you know, Romans 1 and 2 happens. We see the truth suppressed in unrighteousness. 
So here is kind of where the issues and the controversy start to come into play. If society is governed by natural law, and in this view of this two kingdoms position, it is governed by natural law in such a way that scripture isn't to be brought into the equation. Like, so for instance, generally proponents of this view would think that it's inappropriate to make appeals in the common kingdom, in the civil sphere, from scripture... Is natural law, is the law that's written on the heart, the law in nature, a sufficient basis for government, for human society? And I think this is usually where we start to see, although Van Drunen did deny this, he said there wasn't neutrality. This is often where the accusation of having a neutral sphere comes in, because if if the civil sphere, if the common kingdom is governed by natural law, apart from special revelation, apart from anything biblical, then basically society is left to govern itself by its own norms, its own perception and interpretation of natural law. And I think where we have an issue with this is Reformed theology is rather consistent about the noetic effects of the fall. That is how the fall has corrupted human nature up to and including human reason and human moral understanding, how the fall has affected our minds. I would argue people are not capable to reason or by nature arrive at the moral law. Uh, not perfectly. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And if the moral law is the same as natural law, then what would preclude us from appealing to that moral law as it's set down in scripture in the civil sphere? Boiling that down, the state is ordained by God. It is an institution set up by God that is conceded. The, the question uh, that Andrews is, that you're saying here is they, they have a legitimate power and authority, but what keeps the power of the state in check? Because uh, obviously this, this is a fallen world. This is fallen man. Um, like you're saying, the effects of the fall are significant. What actually is what keeps the state from abusing its power uh we, we don't have to go into examples here just think of the past several years for people is it is it by morals okay well well according to what standard if, if we want to use that fun vantillian phrase for fun just because uh where are those morals coming from how are those morals derived or rather developed and understood because we, we understand the, the moral law to be written on the heart by nature, thus that that aspect of, of natural law. But it is a dimmed natural law. It is darkened in, in, in wickedness. Uh, so are those morals on the heart actually reliable to, uh, to govern? This whole thing is relative uh, relativity uh, today. Do, do people just simply need better teaching? You know, do they need just better instruction to, to, in order to rule rightly? You know, this would be saying that man's core issue and its corrective is simply epistemological. Uh, man just needs better reason and, and better truth. A knowledge of truth is to be remedied by just thinking better. 
uh, by right reason. But is man like a reasoning capable of navigating and operating morally? You see that the issue becomes circular is, is what Andrew is talking about here. Yeah, and I have some more quotes here from from living in God's two kingdoms, I think, to maybe help uh, flesh out some of these issues more. So starting on page 197, Dr. Van Drun, and he lays out five principles, five truths regarding the state uh, and Christians' relationship to it. So first, Scripture teaches that civil magistrates have been established by God. They're appealing to Romans 13, 1 and 2. Caleb just said that. No problem there. Second, these magistrates are primarily responsible for keeping order and enforcing justice in the affairs of the world. They give approval to those who do good and carry out God's vengeance upon the wrongdoer. Romans 13, 3 and 4. I mean, so far, I think we're still in a pretty okay place. Although I think as we move forward from here, we start to see maybe where some of the break is. Third, Scripture indicates that Christians have many obligations toward these magistrates who govern by God's appointment. Believers should live in submission to them, render them proper honor, pay their taxes, and pray for them. So again, pretty basic Romans 13 type stuff. Uh, Then he goes on to say the clear exception to the obligations to submit is when magistrates command believers to do things contrary to God's will. Okay, so far, so good. Uh, Fourth, Christians may serve in political offices or other government posts as a legitimate and God-pleasing vocation. And then fifth, he says the state's authority is limited. And he goes on to say later, first, since the state is under God's authority, it has no right to operate contrary to his moral law. Again, Uh, So far, not a lot that we are going to find disagreement with. But the problem comes in when we talk about how these two spheres operate under different rules and how this is put into application. So looking forward onto page 199, he says, uh, speaking of political issues, political decisions, he says, where scripture is silent... There is no single Christian position. And then continuing on at the bottom of the page, in my judgment, this is Dr. Van Drunen writing from his perspective, in my judgment, the general rule is that the church must teach and Christians may hold one another accountable for believing all that scripture says about such topics as moral issues, but should be silent about such topics as concrete political or public policy issues. The biblical teaching on these topics clearly has political ramifications. In nearly every case, when a moral issue becomes a concrete political or public policy issue, however, believers must make discretionary judgments in order to decide how to apply the clear biblical teaching to the particular situation. And whenever the application of biblical teaching is a matter of discretion and not specified by Scripture itself, the church must be silent and Christians may not impose their own discretionary judgments upon the consciences of other Christians, end quote. (laughs) So in this way, uh, for one thing, he's talking about then that that in general, the church's function, the the, the church is this redemptive kingdom that God is uh, 
working through, even since creation, is working through for things regarding worship, uh, for everlasting, uh, eternal, uh, eternal principles, eternal uh, realities, and is his appointed means for specifically accomplishing redemption through uh, by faith alone, uh, by his grace alone by faith alone in Christ alone. So it, it is only really in this redempt the sphere of this redemptive kingdom that the Lord is doing any kind of real redemptive work with an eschatological uh continuity, right? In other words, there's there's uh like Andrew had said earlier, this uh I think actually in quoting Van Drunen, correct me if I'm wrong, this is why there's a kind of bucking or knee jerk against the language of uh, redeeming society basically only people can be redeemed only people are christians you can't have christian institutes in the civil sphere you can't have uh, uh christian schools uh you can't have christian uh baseball teams or christian boy scouts like the calvinist cadets only people are Christians, only people are redeemed, not society, not institutions. And therefore, that work is what is carried out in the church and must be understood to remain there. Do not conflate, then, uh, the things that belong to the civil sphere, like political parties and bringing the, the things of the culture wars into the church. Uh, if you're going to engage in those kind of things at all do it on an individual basis don't be a church that's putting up signs and canvassing or protesting or whatever do it at your own uh, your own discretion and by your conscience but do not say that the per the, the church's ultimate purpose is in uh the renewal of social institutions of society in that regard yeah and I mean, I think we would agree that is not the ultimate purpose of the church, right. but which we'll see. One of the issues that you see in this system is that uh, if something is determined not to be ultimate, then it is often just simply dismissed, uh, not recognizing that, well, there are good purposes and activities and actions that pertain to penultimate things to life in this world. I. I want to, uh, before we move on from this two kingdoms discussion, uh, in his book, picking up immediately after the quote I read, Dr. Van Drunen offers a case study, particularly one we've already talked about in this discussion, abortion. And I think this is where you kind of start to see the rubber hitting the road as far as uh, how someone in this perspective would deal with this issue opposed to someone else. So Dr. Van Drunen, I'm not going to read all of it. I'll quote a few short parts, but this is on pages 200 and 201 of Living God in God's Two Kingdoms. So he does talk about how, uh, while there's not an explicit condemnation of abortion in Scripture, there are the texts. He uses one I used earlier, Exodus 21, regarding the human dignity of, a, of an unborn child. And then he talks about that it is okay for ministers to teach the church about the dignity of the human embryo and its need for protection. Now, here just as a personal interjection, I do not want anyone to at any point here suspect that I'm saying that, oh, Dr. Van Drunen is, is soft on the abortion issue or whatever. Um, I know him personally. I know he has some very, him and his family have some very deep and personal convictions 
against abortion. So that is not what I am wanting to bring up at all. But I do think that in the application of this system, there are some things that I would disagree with and I think may be problematic. So he talks about human dignity and but then on the bottom of page 200, he puts forth this question. But is there a particular Christian view that the church should promote with respect to abortion as a concrete public policy issue? Christians find themselves in the midst of a fallen world in which rape and fornication produce many unwanted pregnancies, in which many people advocate abortion rights, in which politicians, political parties, and judges hold a variety of views on abortion entangled with their views on related issues, and which many women, if denied access to legal abortion, will obtain abortion on the black market. To be effective in such a world, Christians cannot simply assert that in an ideal world, abortion should always and everywhere be illegal. Christians must consider how to live consistently with their conviction about the evil of abortion in a world that is very far from ideal. And this requires judgments that depend upon discernments on discernment and wisdom judgments about which Christians equally committed to scripture may disagree. Now, again, uh, with all due respect to Dr. Van Drunen, this is where I think this is, well, this is one of the areas I think where where I'd have to part ways with him, where he says to be effective in such a world, Christians cannot simply assert that in an ideal world, abortion should always and everywhere be illegal. I think that actually is something we can do. I think it's something we should do. I think moral consistency actually demands it that abortion should be illegal in all cases and in all situations. You know, we could talk about, well, what about rape and incest? Well, if we are ascribing human dignity to the unborn person, uh, we don't punish children for the sins of their parents. We don't prescribe the death penalty to children who are conceived in, in sinful situations. So it would be an injustice to allow abortion in cases like that. And I think that's a actually, I mean, people don't like it because of the political and societal implications, but I think morally that's actually a rather simple and straightforward argument. I've, for instance, in one of my appearances on the Restless podcast, we talked about this. And I think there's some controversy between like the more, I guess you could say standard pro-life movement and the abolitionist movement. And I think the abolitionist movement is actually correct here in that if we say that unborn children are people, there's not a situation in which it's permissible to allow abortion. And that's rather that's rather fundamental. But leaving that aside, because like I said, Dr. Van Drunen has strong and good convictions about abortion himself. A question I have is, okay, leaving his personal beliefs aside, this system, this method of e of ethical reasoning that he has set forth, what does that leave the door open for? Because if we're saying that, okay, we can talk about the dignity of unborn life and all that, but then we cannot speak to particular policy or particular political positions we hold about it, then what is to preclude someone in the church from, you know, saying, yeah, okay, a dignity of unborn life, but 
I'm still going to go vote for Democrats who want all abortion all the time up to birth and even after. I think one of the problems with this approach to the two kingdoms theology is that it gives refuge in the church for people who do hold immoral positions with political applications. I realize that's a bit of a heavy swing there, but I think it's accurate. I think even I mentioned my other professor, Michael Horton, you see how this kind of works out in some of the things he's done. He um, at one point prior to the Obergefell ruling uh, talked about supporting civil unions as a means of loving neighbor. So the problem, again, loving neighbor is defined by scripture. It's defined by the commandments. We don't have love for neighbor that deviates from those things. Yeah, I think these are kind of the issues that this opens up. If we're saying that the church can't speak to any particular policy or political issues, people get so scared that they even go lax on preaching the moral law in moral ways. Because politics, and this is one of, I'm kind of soapboxing here, but, you know, we always hear the whine, you can't legislate morality, but essentially all of legislation, with few exceptions, is in fact legislating morality. Killing, murdering is a moral issue. Stealing is a moral issue. Fraud is a moral issue. There is no not legislating morality. So that's really one of the great myths of our day that we need to put to rest. The question really becomes, whose morality are we legislating? Are we legislating you know, morality that reflects uh, our God who has made us? who has prescribed morality for us or are we going are we falling into some subjective or relativistic or even uh, evil or pagan morality that we're going to legislate for instead that is the the very thing there um one fast caveat before uh spinning off that and then transitioning into uh, the next view uh it should be noted that also from that uh that Suggestion from from Dr. Horton that you brought up before the Obergefell. Did I say it? It's a mouthful. I can't. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> before the SCOTUS ruling on homosexual marriage. <laughs> uh, the caveat here, um, that Dr. Horton uh, was giving the, the, the proposition or suggestion uh, theoretical of the support of civil union. It's at least should be it should at least be known that he in that article did not necessarily himself state that was his position, um, but that that was but that it was a possible direction that people might go be, uh, out of concern of the love for the neighbor um, in order to to grant the same civil privileges such as being able to file taxes jointly as a homosexual couple uh, to receive those same kind of sort of benefits in the civil sphere because they're separate from the rulings and holy workings in the church. But it should at least be given that, that caveat that he doesn't explicitly state that that is his position. Yeah, he basically, though, he introduces it to the realm of possibility of something that, that might be acceptable might be a way forward and that's the danger yeah now what's interesting is that argument hasn't gone away it was uh i don't remember exactly the author but it was just like a month ago somebody writing on the gospel coalition basically made that same argument again um now on this side of obergefell thinking that maybe well civil unions are something we can go back to to try to 
to try to recapture the sanctity of marriage, which I don't think that was the answer before Obergefell, and it's certainly not the answer now. <laughs> right. But that's another discussion for another day. But all that to say is basically, in summary, and again, you know, I, I want to say this with all due respect to my professors and my alma mater, but I think this system opens the door for some troubling things. And I don't think it really talks about Christian ethics or the moral law or things of that in the way that historic reform theology has. I think we've built enough of a foundation in this series at this point, but talking about the law and its applicability and stuff that we don't need to retread all that ground. I think you can kind of see where, where we would break. Um, and this is, and this is keeping in mind that, that what we're doing right here is uh, in this, this series is also trying to give a, a quick, uh, somewhat clear, general overview of these positions there is much more that can be said about each of these two such as theonomy um and uh and this two kingdoms position there is a lot more that can be said and interacted with but perhaps in the future as uh, other topics and other situations in society or whatever come up uh then then there will be a chance to kind of get a little bit more we might be able to get a little bit more uh, in depth or talk about how it plays out if you will in real time uh, so this is this is giving just that general overview as best as possible within a limited time frame of sorts but it's by no means like done that we're we're saying well this is all there is to it so here with two kingdoms in preparing for this next section uh, on the, you could say the position that we hold to in transitioning here, uh, we understand uh, what Andrew has been talking about here is then uh, society uh, is not infallible. Society uh, in, in Western society, especially in the past, when there was more Christian influence in it, so to speak, operated by general principles and biblical principles. So, so you saw something of a, a, a if you will, uh, a more grounded basis of morality playing out, even if just nominally. Uh, it, it was a little bit more, if you will, culture. We're not talking Christian nationalism or whatnot. We're, we're saying that there was more influence from scriptural bases from the past that was still lingering upon modern and postmodern society into the 20th century, but there was corrosion over time. Okay, now, now, having this having this basis of morality didn't mean that the society or nations were holy. It didn't mean that it was theocratic. That we we that we were some kind of before uh, a a city set upon a hill, Christendom of set of sorts, ordained by God. All nations will dim and do dim. All nations fail uh, and, and act unjustly, and they break from God. They may come back to God later in time. These things go in cycles. But the these principles, um, that is the general rules or concepts for morality, were there. In time, those scripture-based uh, principles for living were supplanted, uh, if you want to put it in that way. They, they were gradually supplanted by secular principles, by, 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 if you will, worldly concepts and ways of living. Now, when God ceases to be the basis for moral principles, uh, who takes his place? Well, who wields the most power? It's the state. Um, and the state operates, as Andrew had said, by 
a sense of a general morality according to what it finds to be the most moral uh, as the best choice for its purposes and visions and whatnot for the country. Two Kingdoms is entrusting that kind of, uh, if you will, vision, that entrusting those concepts. And this is what distinguishes them from, say, uh, the position we'll take up next in Kuyperianism next time. They are okay with looking at civil ethics or as morality as secular pluralism, being able to derive from a secular source or particularly the state and trust the general reasoning and morality of, uh, of, of people in society, the state, with guiding the society as a whole. It is, in sense, an optimistic position, secular principles. But we have raised the position constantly. What actually are secular principles? What is secular morality? But that's uh, that's all the time that we have here. Um, sorry, I got I got I got to throw something oh, in now. Go ahead. Too. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing we need to consider too, and we've we've looked at this a little bit already when we did our historical survey and stuff, is that. Uh, this secularism, this government sort of by, by consensus of the people, uh, unmoored from any kind of Christian morality, is a very late development. I mean, it's not even something we really see in the American founding. The American founding, th- there was a pluralism, but it was a Christian pluralism. It was different denominations of Christians. And... The issue, I think, perhaps, and this would be a larger discussion for another time, but uh, uh, even in just like probably the last century or so, there's been a major shift away from that. And it's a shift that some, including a lot of people in this two kingdoms, can't even celebrate that the death of cultural Christianity. Um, but the fact of the matter is there was a lot of of what cultural Christianity so-called did and provided, at least as far as moral framework that was very important in uh, sort of keeping society from chaos. And what we're seeing now at the end of this, maybe it's the end of this, maybe it's not, but, but we're seeing essentially uh, moral chaos. In fact, this is in the introduction of every episode of this show. Uh, we assert that we are living in a world of moral and spiritual chaos where, you know, roughly 50% of the registered voters in this country believe that something like abortion or things like the LGBT spectrum of lifestyles and sins and identities are not only morally acceptable, but are in fact morally good and morally necessary. I think for this two kingdoms based on natural law into which scripture is not really permitted to speak not to be so cynical, but it seems that the proof is in the pudding. Uh, we look at what we have from where we've been, and and just clearly this isn't working. This isn't producing uh, the kind of of society that is good for human flourishing, that is good for the church, or that is really good for anyone. Um, sorry to say, um, it's not that I you know hate my country. I love my country. I would love to see it. Uh, repent and turn around but this is also the hand that we are presently dealt yeah it's 
it's a hyper postmodernity in, in a sense. Yeah. I, you know, we're we're seeing extreme applications of postmodern principles, which are again are the these are things that we uh you know, our whole topics in and of themselves. It would be interesting to see the comparison of the contributions of uh, Christian thought, you know, especially from in Western society, of which Calvin was an enormous influence. Uh, this was a huge area of study throughout the early 20th century. Um, the uh, the first half of the 20th century, Calvin was an enormous influence on Western society and culture. Um, but now there's this 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 huge uh, shift for a extreme applications of relativism or even uh, nihilism. And on that happy and uplifting note, we're out of time for today. Uh, we thank you for joining us once again for Once for All Delivered. Uh, you can contact us in all the usual ways, social media at OFAD Podcast. Uh, visit our website, onceforalldelivered.com. Let us know what you think. If you have feedback, issues, complaints, uh, recipes, and as, of course, we still need a pithy outro phrase, a, a sign-off phrase, so please help. Caleb? Oh, sorry, I put it on mute instead. I usually mute while I'm not speaking, uh, just for simplicity and to not pick up sounds. Anyways, yeah, in the, in the meantime, uh, you know, we continue to, uh, to along with scripture, uh, encourage you in, in contending earnestly for the faith which was once delivered to the saints once delivered once for, once all, for delivered. all delivered and forever and ever <laughs> see there's yep. there was there so, was an attempt to tie it back in and it bombed so uh we're ending it here <laughs> yep this is the end <laughs> this is the end all right bye thank you for listening to this episode for the latest news and updates visit our substack at onceforalldelivered.com where you can also support our work with a paid subscription. You can also follow us on social media at OFAD Podcast. If you like what you have heard, leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts and spread the word about the show. Once For All Delivered is hosted by Andrew Smith and Caleb Castro and produced by Andrew and Heidi Smith. A special thank you to our founding member, Eric Hepker. We hope you will join us again next time on Once for All Delivered.